The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. It's just P. Nate here, and I'm not joined with Chris, but I am joined with uh, a friend who is uh, slowly becoming a good friend of the podcast because he's on for the second time. So I'm joined by Dominic Nontenant coming to us from our future, depending on what time zone you're listening to this in. My favorite theologian from New Zealand, I say, Dominic Nontenant. Thanks for coming back on the show. Glad to be here. It's been a, a kind of a joy for me to watch all of the cool things that you're up to these days. I, uh, I, I think we, we talked a little bit about my history with your work, uh, The Spine of Scripture, and that was sort of my introduction to you. And we talked about that, that work of yours last time. And, uh, and since then, I mean, you pointed me to a few places where you blog quite regularly. And so getting caught up on some of those things, uh, you've just been a huge blessing to me. I was really excited because you're starting this new work. We had talked about wanting to get together and chat again. The guys on Haunted Cosmos, which is quickly becoming one of my other favorite podcasts, had quoted you in one of their episodes. And so it just made me think, man, I got more that I can talk to Non about. We got to get you on and talk about that. And then slowly after, I saw this new work that you're doing, which is called True Magic. And so anybody who's following along, or maybe if you're in front of the computer while you're listening to this, you can go to truemagic.substack.com and you can see where this new project is going to be taking place. It's a new podcast that Nan is doing with his wife. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about the project in general and maybe how Spine of Scripture pushed you in this direction? True Magic is, I would say it's haunted cosmos adjacent in that it is also very much intentionally situated into that part of the reformed world that is trying to re-enchant theology and our understanding of the world and it's not really concerned with things like spiritual beings and supernatural experiences like haunted cosmos is it's more concerned with what is the meaning of physical stuff so it's taking as granted that when god made the world he made it in the way that he did with the forms that he did because those actually mean something they are expressing spiritual patterns in some way. And then it's asking the question, given that it means stuff, what does it mean? And how do we then take that meaning and adjust our lives in order to better conform to the spiritual patterns that God is expressing in the physical world? So the way that we introduce the podcast is that it's the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning that God imbued into the physical world. So this takes two parts. The first part is we want to study scripture because obviously scripture is what grounds everything that we are expressing here. All of our theology comes from scripture. Scripture is the, the norming norm. But we also want to study the nature that God made because that's where you actually find the forms themselves. So scripture talks a lot about what they mean, but the forms themselves, the forms of creation are in creation. So you have to study creation, especially we're going to be focusing on studying the various aspects of creation that relate to man, things like clothing and language, those kinds of things, because obviously we're concerned especially with practical piety. We're not just asking, what does the shape of a water lily mean? That's not really the concern <laughs> that we have in our podcast. That's an interesting question, but we're concerned with what does the fact that long flowing robes are glorious mean? And does that mean that we should be wearing long flowing robes? These are the kinds of questions that we want to be asking. How do we apply these kinds of spiritual patterns in the form of the things that we do, especially in the very disenchanted world that we live in, in the modern day? 
the first part of it is to look at the patterns and ask what they are, how do they work? What are the spiritual principles behind a lot of the forms? And then the second part is basically saying, given this intersection of fact and meaning, how do we live? How should we be shaping our piety in order to better conform to that? Given what we learn in scripture and in nature about the physical imaging, the spiritual, and given that we ourselves are the image of the invisible God, how should we live so that we're properly participating in these patterns? And this really comes down to the idea in the Lord's Prayer that when we pray, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there is really something that God will actually help us to do, <laughs> which we aren't currently doing perfectly, and that we can learn to do better, and that through it, he will impress the more heaven right onto earth. Just to back up a little bit so that we can take a running yeah, start. This, this is really hard to explain to the average person. They're just like, what? There's a great blog post that's introducing some of these key concepts that you put up on True Magic, which is what whet my appetite to all these things. And you said, if the headings are gobbledygook to you, just keep reading. They'll make sense when I explain them. It's sort of like, this really is such a complex concept that I just don't think many of us are having these conversations or thinking about these things. And yet, when you start to understand what you're trying to accomplish, you can see how important they are. So one of the reasons I think that this is such gobbledygook to some people is because our thinking has been so infiltrated by materialism that what we see is all that there is. And you're good with words, Nan, and uh, I love that about you. I love the phrase that it's a podcast aimed at re-enchanting Reformed Christianity. I love that phrase because I think... Unfortunately, the Reformed faith has become the place where fantasy and supernatural and the work of the spirit and the symbolic world that we live in isn't talked about at all. It's like we want to deal with the concepts of Reformed theology and soteriology and eschatology, which are all concepts, and yet we want to do it in the material world of the pagans. It's ridiculous. So let's back up a little bit because the main concept here comes from the idea that the world is symbolic and material things are symbolic. What do you right. mean by that? And maybe give us the example that I thought really explained it well is the example of light. So do you want to explain that concept of what it means that physical things participate in spiritual patterns or physical things are symbols of spiritual realities? Yeah. So a symbol is a physical expression or embodiment of a spiritual pattern or reality. And I try to use various different words to gradually get the idea across in different ways, because it is something which it's not actually that it's complicated to understand. It's that it's intuitive to understand. And I think reform people, especially it's like the, the combination of materialism and reform theology somehow produces these people who are deeply suspicious of any sort of imagination. It has to be all propositions and it's not something that is easy to lay out in propositional form because it involves things that you have to look at them and the way that they impress themselves on you is mm. important to understanding them. It's not something you can just take a fact and then extrapolate through some sort of logical process what it means. It's you take the fact and you look at it and through your imaginative interaction with it, you know what it means, which is ironically exactly the sort of thing that reformed people will say atheists refuse to do when they look at the glory of creation. They say atheists all know that God exists because God has made it manifest to them, not through logical propositions, but through the fact of creation that they look up at the sky and they know that he's there and his divine attributes are clearly revealed. Well, this is exactly what symbolism is. Right. That is what it means that the world is symbolic. So the way that I tend to explain it is I go back to Genesis and to John 1, because I think that starting right at the beginning is helpful with a really basic elemental kind of symbol, which is when God says, let there be light, what is he doing? What is happening there? Is light something that already exists that God is then causing to take physical form, which I don't think most people think that way. But when you look at the way that John speaks about how there was true light, which is in Christ, and you look at the way that Genesis speaks about how God says, let there be light. There has to be something in his mind that is already what light is before light is created. And we learn in John that that light is not like an abstract idea. It is actually a function or a power or element, whatever you want to call it, an attribute of Christ himself. So the right. son of God is what light consists in. And then God says, let there be light, meaning not 
let light exist for the first time, but rather let light come into physical form. Right. And then photons appear. And we learn something about the nature of Christ from the nature of photons. They're both particles and rays. Well, that's an interesting juxtaposition that they can be two things and yet be one thing. And they are warm, but they can also burn you. They are yeah. luminous, so you can see things by them. You learn through them, that kind of thing. So yep. the light is a symbol in that it is expressing the spiritual reality which existed in Christ before the physical world began. What I love about the concept is, like you said, it's simple, and yet it's just something that we haven't spent enough time thinking about and talking about, so it's hard to get handles on it. But once you start thinking in that direction, what you start to realize, and this moves on to the second point when you are laying out some of these foundational principles, is that it gives everything in the world meaning. Right, Everything in the created world now suddenly has purpose, and its purpose is to reveal something about the spiritual realm. So everything mm -hmm. in our world, visible and invisible, is a purposeful symbol that is meant to teach us something about the heavenly realm and the God who resides there. It's meant to teach us something, and it's meant to actually participate in that heavenly reality. Mm -hmm. One of the examples that I use, which I have found surprises people because it's kind of very intuitively obvious and it's built into our very bodies but we don't tend to think about this is why do we stand upright and then when we fall asleep we lie down what do those two axes mean and what does it mean that our head is above our feet instead of the other way around why don't we go on our bellies these sorts of questions we are participating in heavenly realities by having a head and a body because we know from the new testament that heads and bodies are fundamentally spiritual realities jesus christ has a body and he is the head and that doesn't right. mean that he is like a skull with eyes and things it means <laughs> that he is the spiritual pattern that our physical heads embody right so that means then just kind of continuing your flow of thought from the introduction to all of this is that we participate in the spiritual patterns at different levels and the mm -hmm. example that you used that i thought was really helpful is the idea you quote from Ephesians chapter five for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it speaks of Christ in the church. So talking about that in terms of, and I do this in pre-marriage counseling and I get young people looking at me a little bit sideways when I start to talk about how the physical intimacy in their marriage is symbolic of the indwelling of Christ in the church. And I think actually that it's profoundly practical in helping Christians even be ready for the attacks that come on their marriage. Why is it that Satan hates marriage so much? Well, because it's actually a picture of his ultimate defeat. Why is it that he can't take you to hell with him? Because the spirit of God resides in the life of a believer and Christ indwells a believer. And because of that reality, Satan can't snatch you from Christ's hand. And so that's a profound thing for us to understand. And yet, I just don't think we think about it enough. Explain that. I'm fumbling around, but you're the one who's thought about this more. Well, you're right. Sex embodies the relationship between two people or two peoples in some cases, in the case of Christ and the church. We know that when God made man and he made the woman and brought her to him, he created their forms in order to teach us when the New Testament was written thousands of years later, in order to finally reveal to us explicitly that this is about the plan of redemption and about what he intended between himself and his people, between Christ and the church. And the physical form of the sex act and also of male and female teach us about the spiritual pattern that they participate in, which is God and his people. And this is a great place to demonstrate the practical significance in terms of actual piety, because I'm, as you know, involved in the whole manosphere as well. I've written a book on masculinity with Michael Foster called It's Good to Be Man. And one of the things that I've found, especially in the Christian manosphere, is you've got some people, some kind of masculinity pundits, who will take every opportunity to reduce sex to an animal act. I have my suspicions about why that might be, but the way that they tend to put it is if anyone says something like one of them that I saw recently was someone had said, the man is designed for the pleasure of the woman and the woman is designed for the pleasure of the man or something along those lines, like our bodies are designed for each other's pleasure. And the response of this guy was, 
no, the man is not designed for the woman. The woman is for the man, not vice versa. And it's therefore natural for men to use women in sex. It talks about in Romans 1, the natural use of a woman, which I think is a bit of a twisting of that scripture as well. But there's no equivalent natural use of the man that the woman has. And to the materialist-minded Christian, especially to someone who's come out of the red pill into Christianity and has realized that there is truth in Christianity and that there are a lot of these pickup artist type people have become very disenchanted with the pickup artist world and realize how meaningless it all is. And they turn to Christianity of some kind. Often it's orthodoxy or Catholicism, but whatever. They turn to the Christian tradition, one might say, in order to find meaning there. And they can easily be persuaded by these kinds of arguments because there's still a lot of that materialistic enlightenment world set, mindset, worldview in their heads. But when you understand the actual symbolic importance of the sex act and you look at what the form is expressing spiritually, that kind of comment just sounds stupid because you're essentially saying, well, the church exists for the pleasure of Jesus. Jesus uses the church, but the church does not take pleasure or does not need to take pleasure. It's not really important if the church takes pleasure in Christ and Christ was not designed for the pleasure of the church. Now, you know, there certainly is a sense in which that's true because Christ is all and we are essentially nothing. Christ is God. (laughs) There's an infinite divide. There is a certain truth that's being expressed there, but it's being expressed in this really twisted way because we know that Christ gave himself up for his church in order to bring his church into him and, well, in order to fill his church and in order to give his church a kind of it's difficult to even use the word pleasure. The church tradition would say beatific vision. It's like there is no way to describe the raptures of seeing Christ or being in Christ once you fully experience it. But the pleasure of sex is meant to be a tiny physical foretaste of that in order to teach us a little bit about what it means. So the idea that the church is not supposed to, or it's not really like important for the woman to be having pleasure in sex, that the the man was not designed for the woman's pleasure. Sure, God wasn't designed, but he did design the church in order to receive pleasure. And if you don't have that clearly in mind, then your entire view of sex can become extremely distorted and disrupted and animalistic. And it really reduces it down to just kind of physical passions. Whereas when you understand the spiritual patterns that those physical passions participate in, they can be rightly ordered toward a fuller and more, well, again, I use the word piety, a a more, not pietistic, but a more righteous. Words fail me. Words are hard. (laughs) A more righteous pattern, I guess I want to say again. Pattern is a very important word here, which I get from scripture. You know, Jesus, not Jesus, Moses is told to construct the temple after the pattern that he saw on the mountain and the book of Hebrews speaks the same way. So the idea of there being a kind of heavenly pattern that earthly things embody is quite important. And that's sort of the next place we go, but just to transition it well, to stay on, since we're already talking about sex, I think sometimes whether you're in the Christian faith or even those looking to the Christian faith from the outside, they often think of the moral laws of scripture as arbitrary. We as Christians, we have an apologetic for this, right? It's not arbitrary when the law says do not steal. And it's also not just practical, like stealing your neighbor's stuff makes for a pretty bad society. It's that God is not a thief and his Mm -hmm. law reflects his character. But it's important to think about this pattern coming down. But when you're talking about even the idea that sex is symbolic and it shows us something that's true about Christ and the church, that also actually tells us then why certain sex acts are outside of God's norm and God's law, right? sodomy, for example, is mm-hmm. filling in a way that is a perversion of the created yeah. norm. And, it, and it's reflecting right. something perverse and untrue about the spiritual realm. Yeah. And so it actually gives a fuller depth of meaning, I think, to God's laws and his commands, because it's showing you why it's so heinous for us to break God's law, because it's then functionally showing something that the symbol was never meant to reveal or to show. That's right. And I'll give another example of this. Another example that I use in the article is the example of meal sharing, which is helpful for understanding the patterns of reality, but it's also helpful for dealing with something of a controversy in the church at the moment, which is over the Lord's Supper and who should participate in it. 
the basic idea is you've got bread, which represents your work because you have to do work, but that, let's leave that aside. The bread represents once it's eaten by everyone, you're all eating one thing. So your bodies are built up by this one substance, which means that as you all mutually participate in the one loaf, that actually turns you all into the same stuff. So you're all becoming one together. That's the image of what's happening in a meal, which is why intuitively, like every culture ever has always had family meals and has considered hospitality to be very important for ensuring a strong bond between neighbors and between even neighbors and strangers, that kind of thing. But it's also why the Old Testament sacrifices culminated in a meal with God. And it's why the New Testament fulfills that in a meal with God, which is communion. And it's why I think you can say that the church has gotten quite off course yeah. with its approach to communion, not just in the, like in the sense that, you know, a lot of modern churches will use crackers and Coke or whatever. Like, okay, it's obviously a travesty. <laughs> I think that even most reformed people would recognize that. But in terms of the way that it thinks about communion, the church has focused really heavily on how is the bread, the body of Christ, meaning his physical body, right. which is not the point. Yeah. Because when he says, this is my body, which is given for you, there is obviously a, a truth that this is his physical body. But when the New Testament takes up that language later, like in Corinthians, it speaks in terms of we are one bread, one body. And the whole point is that the bread represents the spiritual body of Christ, the church. And so when it talks about how you must be able to discern the body in order to eat the bread, it's not saying you have to be able to recognize some deep theological truth about the <laughs> whatever view your church happens to take, whether it's a symbolic view or whether you take some kind of, it's not like a mere representation. It's there's something deeper going on. There's a spiritual presence. It's not talking about that. It's talking about, you must be able to discern the unity of the church itself in eating. You must understand what you're doing in taking this bread into yourself, which is why it's profoundly ironic. I think that the reformers rejected having children at the table yeah, because now, this, is, this will be controversial, but the children are part of the body, right? They baptized into the body. And so by taking the bread without allowing the children to take it, you're doing the very thing Paul said that you shouldn't be doing. You're not discerning the body. Well, and it's funny how when we're not thinking about the connection between spiritual realities and the symbols that they trickle down into, how easy it is to misrepresent or to misunderstand fairly simple verses. Like I grew yes. up in the church and it was always – you are to examine yourself. And the time of communion became this really sad, introspective mm -hmm. time where I'm yep. looking for deep hidden sins that even I'm not aware of because I'm trying to yep. examine myself lest I bring down the wrath of God on me. And yet when you understand what the body is, it says examine yourself in relation to what? In relation to the body, in relation to the unity of the body. And, and it all starts yep. with Paul condemning the Corinthian church because there's factions and divisions among you. So the, exactly. the, the whole idea that anybody within the church body would be excluded from communion outside of excommunication is actually what Paul is condemning them for, is the idea that you are one and you are to discern and examine yourself to make sure that you are not divisive, that you are not one of the ones bringing division to this table, because at this table, we are all being built up into the head. So it's just, well it's, it's interesting that when you don't start with the heavenly patterns and ask the question of what, what is this for, it's so easy to get lost in key verse. In familiarizing myself with some of your thoughts on this, as reading some of your blog posts, and you have one, I wish I still had it up, but I think it's called Got a Verse for That. I thought it was really, really good at this showing how we've reduced theology to what's your verse, what's your life verse for that, right? And so everything is, is based on this. Rather than the holistic approach to scripture, what is the narrative telling you? What is the grand story telling you? What are the spiritual patterns that culminate in this New Testament passage that you're looking at? I think we've just gotten too simple in our Bible readings because of bite-sized daily devotions or whatever it is, and we're living on appetizers instead of on full meals. Yeah, we have a mindset that atomizes everything it breaks it down into its smallest constituents because we think that's how you find out what something truly is whereas the world that god made is actually the opposite the more you build things up the more meaning they make so what i want to ask next logically flows from where we're going because it continues to follow your seven things your seven patterns 
But I think this is really key because the moment you start talking about the world being symbolic and the physical world being symbolic, the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading about this project that you're undergoing was how then does that tie into what I understand about us being made in God's image? And it's really interesting. You get to this point. And honestly, it was just a point that I had to sit down and just think about for a few minutes without any sort of writing or any sort of, I just had to sit back and, and think about it. So Talk to me about heaven and earth participating together in man, that man sort of being this integration point between the spiritual realities of heaven and the symbolic world of the earth. Well, I think the place to go, obviously, is Genesis, because in Genesis 2, we have this interesting introduction to the creation of man, which is the same introduction that is used later in different parts of Genesis when we learn about the offspring of various patriarchs or various important people, various figures, which is these are the generations of. And in the case of Adam, it is these are the generations of heavens and the earth, Hmm. which is to say that Adam is the offspring of heaven and earth, which sounds pagan to most Christians. One of the reasons I, I chose the term true magic for our podcast is because I think that the idea of magic has gotten distorted by Christianity over the years in the same way that the idea of myth has. And in the same way that Tolkien and Lewis were trying to recover the idea of true myth, I want to recover the idea of true magic. So going back to the generations idea, though, most people, if you say that man is you know, the offspring of heaven and earth, they'll think you're talking about two gods that got together and created man. But that isn't what the scripture is telling us. What it's telling us is that man is the point at which heaven and earth are pulled together. So God, in the garden, he gets a a big mile of dirt and he shapes it. And then he breathes into the nostrils that he's shaped and the dirt becomes flesh. So something about the spirit that goes into that dirt actually causes all of the forms that the dirt then takes. It causes it to have a heart, causes it to have eyes, causes it to have blood, causes it to have digestive system, causes it to have a brain. So all of these things down to the the mitochondria and the DNA and the cells, all of that is caused by the spirit that goes into it. In other words, these things are expressing some kind of spiritual pattern. It's not arbitrary. The spirit goes into it and these things appear, not something else. So man is literally the combination of heaven and earth. He is spirit combined with dirt. And when you combine spirit and dirt, and the point of it is to, it's God's spirit, it's his image. When you impressed God's image into dirt, you get a man, which is incidentally why angels always look like men when they come down to earth. (laughs) It's because they're also made in the image of God. People say to me, angels aren't made in the image of God, only man's made in the image of God. I'm like, well, you think we're made a little lower than the angels, but the angels aren't made in God's image? That doesn't make any sense. Surely if they're above us, they must be also in his image at least. So then this is a side note. So let's go off on a little tangent here. (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) So we talked a lot about Genesis 6. I felt like our last podcast could have been called uh, Let's Talk About Nephilim. So you have these celestial beings that come down to the earth and rebel. Where did they get those bodies from? And is this related, right? So when something from heaven comes down to earth, are you saying that that's the form they take then is the same form? Yeah, I think that there is... I can't prove this, obviously. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> this, is, hey, we're, this is the strong intuition we're I have. Here, <laughs> everything that I've read, everything I've thought about, is that angels being made in God's image have fundamentally, they're more powerful and greater than we are. They're more glorious than we are. But fundamentally, they are the same as we are. And so when they take human form, or I should say, when they take physical form, which they have to do in order to manifest to us on Earth, they appear in the same way because they are the same. They're more glorious. I mean, you see how the angel appears to Daniel and Daniel just like falls down dead in front of yep. it. It's like, obviously it's more glorious. It's It hasn't got normal flesh. It's got bronze and gold and it shines. It's, it's considerably different in many respects. And yet it is still like a man. Hmm. And you see the same thing with Jesus in Revelation. He still looks like a man, but his face shines like the sun in its full strength. You know, you can't even look at it. You'd be blinded. So there is some kind of connection between the pattern that, angels and men exemplify and the physical form that they take. And I don't know, I'm not willing to be dogmatic on the question of how angels 
procreated with women in Genesis 6. Certainly there is a strong stream of tradition which says that they took, they essentially possessed men, which is why in, not in Christian tradition, but certainly in Christian adjacent traditions, you'll find that there are people descended from those angels, the Nephilim and um, their descendants, will be said to be, you know, one third angelic or one third God, one third divine, because you've got a man and a God and a woman involved in the procreation. Hmm. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe they just took physical form like the angels that came and ate food with Abraham. They were obviously able to eat. So they must have had some kind of physical form and a digestive system and whatever. So could go either way. But certainly in Isaiah 6, when we see the seraphs that are protecting the throne of God, they are not completely humanoid, but they are still recognizable as creatures. So I would say that their function is being represented in the vision that Isaiah is having rather than just a basic image of God, maybe you could say, which is why you sometimes see angels appearing in really funky ways. It's because what they're doing is something which is incomprehensible to us physically. But the angels in Isaiah 6 appear as what I would say are probably serpentine creatures with six wings. But it says that one pair of wings covers its feet. And that is a Hebrew idiom that could mean covering its genitals. I would say that in this case, probably that is what it's meaning because it doesn't make a lot of sense for a serpentine being to have feet in the first place. It also doesn't make a lot of sense for it to be covering its feet. Like, why would it need to be doing that? So I think that what it's saying is that it's covering its genitals, which indicates that even angels in heaven are, can be represented as at least having genitals, which is to say that there is some sort of procreative power that they have by merit of being made in the image of God. And so when they take physical form, that procreative power becomes male genitalia. So when we come back to this idea that Assuming man, that anyone's still listening after all that madness. <laughs> not that I don't want to keep talking about angelic <laughs> no, 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 no. with you, Don, but... <laughs> we, we, can, we can move past that. <laughs> so you have this integration point where heaven and earth collide in the creation of man. Right. And what I found so powerful about this when you caused me to think about it was what influence or effect that has on my understanding of the cultural mandate and man's command and mission really to take dominion of the world around us. Because now when we say take dominion of the earth, and sometimes we reduce that to something that's incredibly profound and necessary, but it's still a reduction. And that is what that means is expanding the rule and the reign of heaven on the earth. And and it is that it's not less than that, but I think it's more than that because what's interesting is that God creates the world And it's without form and void, and he begins to make this untamed wilderness. But he gives Adam the blueprint of Eden. He places man in the garden, and then he says, go and make the rest of the untamed wilderness look like the blueprint that I've given to you. And so how does that relate to what you've been talking about in terms of these spiritual realities and that man is sent out with the mandate to organize creation based on the spiritual patterns that he's been given by God? Yeah, I think that you're right to say that we reduce it down to rule. I wouldn't say that it's more than rule. I would say that we actually reduce what rule is. We think of rule really just in terms of a a sort of raw exercise of power, which is why a lot of people really don't like the idea of man being made to rule the earth. In modern Christianity, you typically will hear Adam was a steward. Adam was given stewardship of the earth. eh, Adam was made to be a king. Kings don't just have stewardship. (laughs) They do have rule. Like, yeah, he's a vicegerent under God, but he's not a steward in the same sense that the steward of Gondor was a steward waiting for the king. There's an image there, which is certainly helpful, but Adam was made to exercise God's rule, to impress the heavenly reality onto earth. And he was given the blueprint of the garden in order to know what that looked like. But more than that, he was also made to extend God's work in the earth. So a lot of the rulership that he does is bound up with work, which is why in the Lord's Prayer, we pray as in heaven, so also on earth. That's what we want God to be doing. What we want to be doing through God is bringing his kingdom and his will into the earth as it is done in heaven. But then the very next thing that we pray, which you would think would be connected to that in some way, right, is give us today our daily bread. Well, what does that have to do with bringing God's Well, It has everything to do with it because Adam was made to work the ground. That was how he learned to impress the heavenly reality onto earth. It was through simple daily physical work. Obviously, it doesn't have to be physical. There are lots of ways in which we can impress the heavenly pattern onto earth that aren't just digging in the ground or cutting down trees or whatever. But 
the idea that daily bread is bound up with that, the idea of daily work being bound up with what we do, impressing the heavenly reality onto the physical form of creation is quite important. We tend to have this really epic idea, especially the post-millennialists. They look at, you know, Jesus is reigning and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It'll be from shore to shore and it's only going to get better. And that's all true. There'll be dips sometimes like we're currently in, but it's all getting better. And it is glorious and it is a cosmic rain. But the way that God affects that cosmic rain is through our daily work. It's through mundane things. Even Jesus, before he was made king, had to learn obedience by becoming a son and emptying himself and suffering and learning the work of his father here on earth in order to be proved faithful in the small things so that he could then receive the great things. It's a, a pattern that we see repeatedly in the New Testament. The way that Jesus talks is if you, you want to be made a great king, if you want to become uh, put over lots of things, if you, you want to be recognized for being a great man, then you have to learn how to be a small man first. You have to learn how to be faithful in small things. So Adam is made with the same kind of principle in mind. He isn't made a king with a scepter in his hand. He's made a servant with a spade in his hand. And he has to learn kingship by essentially learning the work of his father. God, in the first six days of creation, he shapes the world. He forms the world. He divides it up into the right domains. He fills those domains. Adam has to do basically the same thing on a smaller scale. He's a sub-creator in God's stead. He has to, so he has to learn the work of his father starting in the garden. And that's what we all have to do as well. Which now brings you full circle back to what we started talking about when you're summarizing this project. Because if that's how man is supposed to live, then it does give greater meaning, greater purpose to things like clothing and food and family and music and architecture and art and all of these sorts of things. So talk a little bit about how that reality plays itself out in some of these subcategories and gives them greater meaning. Mm. Well, I think that one of the things that we have very much lost sight of in the modern world is the importance of liturgy. And we have not a great deal of understanding of the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Testament forms of worship and the New Testament forms of worship and that kind of thing. And I think that we haven't thought very carefully about why it is that God gave these very detailed ways of worshiping to Israel and recorded them for our instruction. And we don't think about, you know, why if you touched a dead body did you have to wash yourself on the third day and the seventh day what does that have to do with the new testament what does that have to do with us why is it that he made the temple in a threefold structure and you could only come into the courtyard and only the priests could go into the holy place and only the high priest could go into the holy holy place why is it ordered that way these kinds of questions why was it arranged the way it was why were there cherubs on the ark of the covenant and trees and fruits and things inside all these sorts of images that god intentionally set up and told people that they were to to create it this specific way what does that have to do with us here's an, another interesting question i've been pondering lately as i've been thinking about the best way to start introducing in our podcast i'm trying to figure out how to go through the topic of clothing in a way that makes sense to the modern mind and doesn't just dump information on them in this massive <laughs> like just drown them. Uh, <laughs> right now, I have more than one draft episode, and the longest of those is 12,000 words. It's like oh. an 85 minute read. It's like, uh, and that's not including a lot of the stuff my wife wants to put in there. So, the way that we're doing it is kind of like a combination between a sermon on interesting symbolic theological insights and a documentary on fascinating cultural elements of history. So my wife's really into things like the way that clothes develop through history and what mm. sorts of clothes you were allowed to wear, like why were only certain classes of people allowed to wear certain types of fabrics and that kind of thing. So mm. we're going to be talking a lot about that, but then we're also going to be relating it back to what does this actually tell us about the spiritual world? How does this relate to the spiritual principles that we want to understand? Mm. So that's kind of what we're doing. But one of the things that I've been thinking about as I'm trying to figure out how to introduce this topic in a way that's relatively systematic and will build gradually up into something that makes sense is the idea of nakedness in the garden. Why was Adam made naked? And I think as Christians, we have this idea that nakedness is somehow like the ideal state of man because Adam was made naked and maybe in heaven will be naked again. But clearly we don't see anyone. We think of clothing. Um, this is my impression. Maybe I'm wrong, but 
most Christians think of clothing, if they've thought about this enough at all, they think of clothing as something that's a result of the fall because Adam mm. covers himself when he sins and then God gives them skins. And so they think, well, clothing is something that is a result of sin because we have to cover ourselves up because we feel ashamed. And in heaven, we won't feel ashamed of our naked bodies. And so we won't need clothes anymore. But if that were the case, why aren't angels naked when they appear? Why doesn't God yeah. appear naked to us in the visions that we see him? Right. That's not what clothes are. That's a corruption of what clothes are. So yeah. what are clothes for? Well, clothes reveal our identity in fuller measure. They glorify us in various ways. So there are all these kinds of questions to be asking. And that connects back to the idea of, you know, why do the priests have to wear the specific clothes that they did? What were they made for? We're told explicitly that one of the things that those clothes were intended to do was to manifest glory. They were made for a glory for the priests. So we want to be thinking about what do those liturgical forms have to do with our everyday life? Because we know that Adam was created on a mountain and he was put there in order to learn God's pattern in the temple. But we know that he wasn't meant to stay there. He was meant to go out into the whole world and to impress the heavenly pattern upon the whole world, which meant daily work. It meant six days of work, one day of rest and worship. And that's still the pattern that we follow today. Even though it's been corrupted by the fall, Jesus is redeeming that pattern. And he tells us, in order for my kingdom to come on the earth, you need to pray for your daily bread. It's not just about coming into church every Sunday as a kind of respite from the world where you, you get to come out of the world for a little while and get caught up into heaven. And, you know, that's the only time that you really get any kind of glimpse of heaven is when you go to church. Well, no, the, the idea is that in church, you learn the pattern of heaven and then you bring that pattern out into your daily life. Hmm. God arranged worship in a particular way. He gave us particular forms. He told us to do it in a particular order. And the example of the Lord's Supper is really helpful. We're told, I think it's 11 times in the New Testament, but 10 times we're given this specific pattern. And then, and then there's an 11th time when Jesus appears to the disciples and they recognize him in the breaking of bread. But he takes the bread, he gives thanks, and then he distributes it. There's this really specific way that it's described every single time, and it's multiple, multiple times that it's described, almost like it's meant to be important to us. <laughs> and why is it that Christians have grace before a meal? Well, it's because their forefathers, it's not because they know this pattern, it's because their forefathers knew this pattern. Their forefathers saw mm. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and then he broke it. So obviously we should do that every time we have a meal. It's not just for the Eucharist, it's for all of life. The Eucharist teaches us how to have a meal properly. And it involves giving thanks for the food and then distributing it to everyone they get to eat. So that's a very basic example, but it's the pinnacle example as well, because obviously the Eucharist is the, the pinnacle of worship. And so it teaches us something about one of the most important facets of life, which is meal sharing. But there are other ways that scripture teaches us about the things that we should be doing in our daily lives. Scripture teaches us about the clothes that the priests wore in worship, which tells us something about the clothes that we should wear in worship. But that also tells us something about the clothes that we should wear in our daily lives, because we need to be able to say, well, how does our daily work differ from worship? And what then is the appropriate adjustment to make in our clothing in order for our clothes to still fit the spiritual pattern as we go out and do these spiritual service of God in our daily work? Because we're not leaving God behind when we leave church. We are engaging in spiritual service to him. Romans 12, 1 tells us that. Everything that we do, Colossians, uh, I forget the other place, Ephesians maybe, Paul speaks about slaves and their masters and how they serve the Lord Christ in the work that they do. Well, if you're right. serving the Lord Christ, that's something that you do in church. Well, you're serving the Lord Christ in your daily life as well. You want to make sure that you're doing that correctly, that you're following the right patterns. So what are those patterns? What does it look like? I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like wearing leggings in public. <laughs> okay. So there's about 10 things running through my mind right now. Let's see how many of them <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Too, too many rabbit trails. No, no, <laughs> no, it's good. It's wonderful. In fact. So one of the first things I'd say, interesting, I just preached on Mark 14. I've been working my way through the book of Mark at our church for a little over a year now. I was preaching right after in the garden of Gethsemane, right? In Mark's account, you have these really weird two verses in 51 and 52 of Mark 14, where it says there's one of these followers who had his linen cloth snatched off and he ran away naked, right? Mm. And you're like, who's this guy, right? And, and yeah. of course, some of the commentators And why like, did Mark spend time in his <laughs> tiny little gospel telling us about this? 
Well, and especially Mark of all people, right? He gives us the least amount of details of yeah. of action, and yet he gives us this. And some commentators say it's Mark inserting himself into the story, and some people say it might have been Joseph of Arimathea because he provides the linen cloth for Jesus and his burial. But it's interesting when you start to look at it, because when you notice that the Greek word that we translate there for linen cloth, the only other time it's used in Mark's gospel is in the next chapter when it's talking about Jesus being laid in the tomb in this linen cloth. Same Greek right. word. It's the only other time Mark uses it. And then interestingly, in the last chapter, in chapter 16, when you get the resurrection announcement, every other gospel writer calls the messenger inside the tomb an angel. But Mark mm -hmm. says he's a young man. And again, mm -hmm. there's only one other time when that word is used, and that's in relation to this young man who had his linen cloth snatched off and runs away naked. And then you start thinking, okay, so obviously Mark is trying to connect these things for us. And so then you look at the white garment that the young man, the angel in the tomb, is dressed in. And the only other time in Mark's gospel when he uses the term white, the word is translated there as white, the color, is in Mark 9.3 when Jesus is described as wearing white at the transfiguration. And so you put all of that together and you're thinking, okay, so what is that for? So this naked guy who runs away ashamed, right? Because he's, he's running away and fleeing in the midst of danger mm -hmm. and abandoning Christ in his hour of need. That shame, that linen of shame is what Jesus is buried in. And then the resurrection, right? The young man in the tomb who's related to this young man is wearing white. So it shows that the exchange of clothing, it's the garment of shame being exchanged for the garment of glory Amazing. that we see in the transfiguration. And so I, I only say all that to say, like, it's interesting because Mark is making a pretty profound statement about the gospel, just using symbolism of yeah. clothing, right? Yeah. Using just small words that if Absolutely. you were just to read it, you wouldn't think anything of it unless you knew to look for it. That's right. The other thing that I was thinking about is how some people might be reacting to what you're saying. And yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar <laughs> with some of those reactions. <laughs> yeah. Not that I want to give them too much time on our podcast, but so then what you're presupposing and you said it pretty explicitly. So let me just uh, reiterate it is that God gives us a pattern for what worship is supposed to look like. And mm -hmm. that's a pretty far cry from the way in which worship is ordered in your average Western church right now, right? So when you think about regulative principle, normative principle, you think about these sorts of things, you think what our worship looks like now is, I think, a far cry from what's been established to us in scripture. And I think that we think that there's a whole lot more Christian liberty in this area than there is. But if what you're saying is you come into church and you are worshiping God as he has prescribed, you're learning a pattern that has something to do with how you're supposed to live outside the walls of the church. So the more we tinker with worship inside the church, the more we mess up dominion living outside the church. Would you yes. say that that's true? Yeah, definitely. A good example is just the idea that most churches don't have any kind of confession. When you come into church, if you were to follow the pattern that God gives in the Old Testament, there are three main sacrifices. And the first sacrifice is always a sin offering. So you're always confessing your sin and slaughtering an animal in your place, recognizing your need to die in order to be able to come into God's presence. And that's something which most churches don't do anymore. You just don't see a confession of sin in most churches. If you do, it might be quite cursory, and it's often not in the beginning. It's at some random place. Often it will be at the Eucharist. With communion. <laughs> which is insane. Well, we if examine you think about ourselves. Yeah. What kind of pattern are you inculcating into people's subconscious by doing that? Yeah. That's crazy. Come to the table ashamed. Yeah, right? exactly. That's, I mean, that's what we're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So establishing the correct patterns, establishing a good order of worship and establishing the right kind of attitude in worship, establishing the right dress in worship, working on your music so that your music is following the right pattern. Another good example in the reformed world is there are a lot of people this is by no means new. This is actually something that goes back much earlier than the Reformed. But there are a lot of people in the Reformed world who will say, well, you shouldn't use instruments in worship. Or you shouldn't use hymns in worship, man-made hymns. You should only sing God's words. And that also teaches you bad patterns. It's establishing a confused pattern. You're saying that in the rest of life, it's okay to use instruments and have much more glorious music. And in the rest of life, you're allowed to express 
the truths of God in your own words. But when you come into worship, those things fall away and you're left with much less glorious music and you're left with much less freedom of expression. And that is fundamentally confused because how are those patterns going to flow back down into life? What you're really doing is you're saying that there's a, a strong disconnect between the heavenly pattern and the earthly reality that we are allowed to participate in. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense. That's not what we're made for. Obviously, this project is one that we would then say, go and follow, go to truemagic.substack.com and follow and start listening to the podcast. But in terms of wetting people's appetite for the applicational value of thinking through some of these things and following along as you continue to uncover some of these hidden gems, one of the fundamental things that I have been thinking about is what we've already talked about, and that is in scripture, we see that the image that God gives is that the waters from the temple flow Mm -hmm. out into the world and bring life. And so the pattern of worship in the church creates the culture. I don't know if it was Bonson or somebody who said culture is the report card of the church. And Mm -hmm. so that idea that getting the patterns right and learning the patterns properly in church equips us for living outside of the church. And so it seems to me like one of the first places that we need to start applying some of the things that we uncover as we start thinking through these things is how does this affect the patterns that we're learning inside the church and ordering our Christian worship services, certainly, but even just Christian communities in such Mm -hmm. a way that we are establishing the right kind of patterns as we gather together to learn the patterns and then scatter into the world to bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's something which has been a huge part of the groundwork that has been laid for True Magic in my own life is I ended up preaching a series, which I think ended up being 20 sermons, so about half a year, on worship and the church. So what is the church and how is it supposed to worship? And I ended up going through an enormous amount of thinking through what is liturgy, what are we doing in worship, how does worship participate in the heavenly pattern, relating the church to the divine council as we come into the the court of God. So Mm. that in itself expands what worship is in that it's a a divine council, it's like a heavenly courtroom, which is why you see things like excommunication happening in the worship service in the New Testament. Paul says, when you gather together, put this man out from among you. There's a judgment element happening. And even relating that to the day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament, of course, is the day of judgment. But in the New Testament is the day in which we gather to worship. It's the same language. It's the same word. The day of the Lord and the Lord's day in the New Testament are both used. But in English, you'll read when it's translating days of judgment, it'll be the day of the Lord. And when it's translating uh, gathering together for worship, it's Lord's day. (laughs) It's the same Greek term, man. Why do you translate it differently? So those are all questions that have been in the back of my mind. And I don't know how much we'll talk about that on True Magic itself, but it's definitely something which I have in view to create some kind of content out of. Those sermons are available online, but I would like to maybe write a book on that or create a podcast series on that. Maybe, I don't know, but it's definitely something which the church needs as well. I want to be respectful of your time. So I I want to steer some of this into some of the things that we're talking about on our podcast right now. And that's a good segue as any. You did these 20 sermons, so maybe you can pull from all the vast knowledge that I'm sure is still in your mind and not uh, (laughs) in sermon notes somewhere. Um, But uh, how is it that our worship is spiritual warfare against the principalities and powers of darkness that we talked about a little bit last time in terms of this host of fallen malevolent spirits that are at work in the world and the culture around us? How is our worship potent in that waging spiritual warfare? That is a great question. And I think that there is, at least in our parts of the reformed world, it's a widely acknowledged trope that worship is warfare. But I'm not sure that people really understand the manner in which worship is warfare. How is it that it participates in warfare? I did a sermon on that question. And one of the things that I looked at first was, I can't remember the passage now, but Israel is called to go out to war. And it's one of the few times that it's got a good king. And he goes out to war, but he puts the choir out front. Yeah. So normally you would put your pike man out front, all the people who are best at fighting will go out front. But in this case, he puts the choir out front, the, the people that are doing the worshiping, the, the Levitical choir. And that was quite instructive to me, especially when you combine it with the strange thing that happens when Saul has this evil spirit that's sent from God, which afflicts him. And his servants 
aren't like, oh no, what do we do about this evil spirit? Should we do like an exorcism? Should we get some magical ritual going? They don't even think about it. It's like, obviously what we need to do is get someone who's great at playing music because everyone knows that music drives away evil spirits, <laughs> right? Well, not in the modern day, but apparently back then that was a commonly understood fact. So the fact that there's this connection between music and driving away evil spirits or defeating God's enemies is definitely an intriguing connection that the church should be thinking more about. And I think the Reformed Church especially should be thinking more about because I have a suspicion that if you were to go to some of our charismatic or Pentecostal friends, they would intuit this much more accurately yeah, than a lot of totally. Reformed people would. And reform people, therefore, think, well, those guys are crazy, happy, clappy, so their intuitions should be completely discounted, and we shouldn't think anything about that. Well, that's not quite the right attitude to have, is it? That's how we get the frozen chosen, right? The the worship services yeah. Yeah, where just, everything is stoic and materialistic. It's steering into another ditch, and it's doing yeah. so really for very kind of prideful reasons because our, our theology is better than theirs. And so we've yeah. got nothing to learn from them. Well, that's not how God orders his body. If those guys are part of the body of Christ, there has to be something that they can teach us. Yeah. So the connection between worship and music and warfare is important, but there's also a connection between the Lord's Supper and warfare, which is that when Jesus tells his disciples to do this in memory of me, it doesn't actually say in memory of me. It's a weird turn of phrase in the Greek. It actually says, do this unto my remembrance. And that is hard to make sense of until you go back into the Old Testament and you discover that there is this tribute offering, which involves yeah. bread, which is always done as a memorial offering to God. And he says that when you do this, I will remember my covenant with you. Yeah. So the tribute offering is like a sign of the covenant in a similar way to the rainbow is a sign of the Noah covenant. God sees the rainbow and he remembers his promise and he comes and he acts upon it. He's like, I will never destroy the earth. I was about to destroy the earth, but I saw that rainbow. Ah, I'm not going to do it. It's the same thing when they offer the tribute offering. He's sitting up there, as it were, and he is engaged in ministering the affairs of the earth. And then the tribute offering comes up and he's like, huh, I remember the Israelites and I have a covenant with them. And I'm going to go down and make sure that everything's happening as it should. And if they've got any prayers, I'm going to answer those prayers. And it's, I mean, obviously God knows everything that's happening. And this is a picture that he gives us of how he relates to people. But the same thing happens in the New Testament where Jesus says, do this unto my remembrance. He's saying, when you perform this ritual, this comes up before me in heaven and I will act upon the covenant promises that I have made. What you're doing when you're offering the Lord's Supper is you're not remembering that Jesus died for you. You are asking Jesus to remember that he died for you and you are invoking the promises of the new covenant. So that's a great time to be praying the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Give us today our daily bread. Well, give us today our holy bread and come and establish your kingdom on earth as you have promised, as we are invoking that memory through the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is a particular way in which we engage in warfare against the principalities and powers in the heavenly places because of the fact that it's the time at which we especially cause God's remembrance of his covenant. So we're, we have a kind of special way of asking him to act which has a particular power which isn't the case during the week and during the week obviously he hears our prayers and he will answer them but there's a special potency to the church coming before him in the lord's supper and sharing a meal with him bringing those covenant promises to remembrance what further proof do you need of the premise of true magic than the rainbow which doesn't say that god puts <laughs> it there so that we would remember but that he would remember and we could ask the question why does an omniscient being need a rainbow to remind him well he doesn't but that's how he's patterned the world he's done that's this right. in a way so that we can see what he said it's interesting i think the passage you're referring to is in second chronicles 20. i preached on it myself during the COVID stuff it's jehoshaphat and there's nice this conglomerate army that's coming and he's called to go out, and they're obviously much more powerful than him. But the first thing he does, like you said, is he calls everybody together for worship. And so I just want to point out two things that you said. Number one, if he gathers everybody together for worship, and he does end up putting the worship band, so to speak, out in front of the army. And of course, he causes the armies to fight one another, and they're three days picking up all the spoils of war without ever having to fight because the worship does the winning for them. It's very explicit in the text. Let's see if I can find it real quick where he says, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. 
well, what's one of the first things that churches do? They dismiss the children (laughs) and the wives off to take care of them in the nursery in the Sunday school. And they relegate them to the basement where there's some little old lady who's teaching them with a flannel graph. And you're like, there's potency in the worship, the power of the worship that's being lost when we're not doing it the way God says, when we send our children who are part of all of this. And then you mentioned, obviously, communion. And again, what do most Western evangelical churches do? They do a communion service once a month. So they're only calling God to remember once a month, not every week when they gather, but only once a month they evoke these promises. And so you're seeing how automatically, just with two very quick examples, the church is losing the potency and the power of their worship And they're not then going into the world with the right patterns. Honestly, I don't want to make this too much of a stretch, but the first thing we do in our worship service is we send the children off to nursery, the kids do their Sunday school program down into the basement. And then we wonder why when we go out into the world to interact with the pattern that God's given to us, why so many children are being aborted and slaughtered in the womb. And you got to ask the question, why is it that that's happening when there's so many Or even why so many Christian children are apostatizing and becoming worldly? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're teaching them to. You're teaching them that they have nothing to do with God's court. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you can see how foundational. Sorry, I I cut you off to say those things. I would have. (laughs) No, no, that's (laughs) that's absolutely fine. So there's a connection between music and warfare. There's a connection between the memorial meal and warfare. And there's also a connection just between the idea of the divine council and warfare. So God establishes order in the world through the divine council. He meets with them in order to find out what's happening on earth. And a good example is Sodom or the Tower of Babel as well. It's the same kind of language. We hear that the cry has come up to God about these things, and he comes down to investigate. And a similar thing happens with us in church. We are authorized to bring, our government is doing this. Please help us. Hmm. We're authorized to bring those kinds of concerns to God so that he would be able to act upon them. He wants us to be coming to him with this problem and saying, here's how we think you should act, God. Please do something. That's what he authorizes us to do, and uh, not a lot of that really happens in church services today. I think that, especially in Reformed churches that do take liturgy more seriously, it's a bit ironic that they take liturgy seriously to the point that they actually exclude that kind of thing from happening, because that's something which is important in the church service. Before you pray, you should probably have some kind of a discussion. What are we going to pray about? What sorts of issues are really important to bring before God and explain them in God's presence? It feels a bit dumb. But then we kind of intuitively do it as well. If we have a proper prayer time in our worship service, often you'll find that when you have someone praying, especially if you've got more than one person praying, they'll kind of explain what it is they're praying about, and then they'll ask God to act. That's natural. That's what you should be doing. That's what God wants you to do. So having that kind of thing formalized in your liturgy, I think is very good. Recognizing that God wants you to be able to bring these things before him and he wants you to tell him about it and tell him what you think he should do. Say, these are the judgments that we wish to render because he has established his body on earth as a kind of earthly contingent of the divine council. He wants us to render judgments. We are to judge angels someday. We, We have to be made competent to do that. So that's another important way in which we invoke warfare on our behalf through the worship service. Um, God then takes that up and acts on our behalf. It's a little bit like when Hezekiah has the Babylonians at the gates and he's given this letter about how they're going to defeat him. And the first thing he does is he goes into the temple and he spreads the letter in front of God. Like, obviously God knew it was in the letter, but it's important (laughs) to actually interact with God using the physical forms he's given us. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it shows how bankrupt some of our theology is in these spheres when you think about what's happened, especially over the last couple of years. I can't, I don't think, overstate how much authority the church abdicated over the time of COVID when instead of doing exactly that, we took that letter (laughs) (laughs) and we emailed it to our people and told them to stay six feet apart and away from the church. You know what I mean? It is astounding what the church did during COVID. It was in many ways a blessing of God to reveal to us how far we have fallen in terms of our understanding of what worship is. We truly do not believe that worship sets the pattern for reality or that it is in any way important to reality. If we're willing to just be like, okay, let's not do that for the next six months because the government said so. Yeah. One of the things as you were talking just about creating a space within our liturgy 
for prayers of petition for what we'd like to see God render in our nations. And it reminds me of a famous quote that's at least attributed to, I haven't done the homework myself, but Queen Mary of the Scots, when she says, you know, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all (laughs) the armies of England. And I mean, what world leader nowadays fears the prayers of the church and Mm -hmm. why do they not? And I think they don't because we've lost these patterns And we think about Sunday morning as simply our escape from the world for an hour and 15 minutes that hopefully strengthens us up enough to go and get beat up for another six days. (laughs) So... Very much so. If we even think of it that way, often we just think of it as a nice entertainment time. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Nan. I really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. And I'll be praying that this new project, True Magic, which you're doing with your wife, which I pray will be a blessing for you guys, but also be edifying for all of those who would hear it. So I just point our listeners to truemagic.substack.com to follow along as this project gets off the ground. Is there anything you'd like to say to people who are listening about how to follow the project or how they can give to the project or anything like that as you establish some of these things? We haven't set up anything yet for giving. You can commit to giving through Substack. They've got like a pledge system, but we didn't think it was really appropriate to actually set up payments yet because we haven't really produced anything yet. So I don't know exactly how long it will be until we actually have an episode out. We are hoping to put out an episode every two weeks. So we want to make sure that we've actually got the scripts lined up so that we can actually do that. And that's what we're working on at the moment. We're going to be spending a couple of hours in a cafe this afternoon brainstorming essentially what the spiritual principles are that we want to talk about and what some good illustrations are from the history of clothing. So we're spending our first season talking about what clothing is, what it means, how we should wear clothes, what the current state of the industrialized clothing empire means for us and how we should respond to that, that kind of thing. So it's a surprisingly wide ranging topic, but no, in terms of um, following us, the Substack is where to go and you can sign up there and get on the emailing list and we'll send you out any updates. Awesome. We'll put in the show notes, some of the other places where non blogs alongside Michael Foster and lots of stuff that he's doing. So put all that stuff in the show notes. I would encourage anybody to start following non so he can become your favorite New Zealander as well. Although as we get to know your wife through this new project, she'll probably become our favorite. She's much funnier than me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But number two still isn't bad too. New Zealand's a big place. So yeah, I can deal with that. All right. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being with us, Nan, and we'll hopefully talk again soon. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks, mate.